1 Corinthians chapter 2. As I mentioned last Lord's Day, I recognize that when you take a portion of Scripture, a large chunk in, in very small pieces week by week, that you can at times miss the forest or miss the trees, miss the forest for the trees. And sometimes if you take a big chunk, you miss the trees for the forest. And so I want to read again beginning at verse 6 and go through verse 16 of this chapter. And hopefully as we read it together, some of the things that we've learned about these little bitty pieces will sound little alarm bells or, or wave flags in your mind so that it, it, it will begin to click together. So we'll read verses 6 through 16. This morning we're just going to cover verses 9 through 13. Try to hold your applause or excitement as we cover five entire verses. Um, I'm trying to learn how to preach bigger chunks of, of Scripture better. So let's read together. This is God's Word. He's, Paul the Apostle says, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is God's Word. Now, I'm going to pray. And if it's not your normal practice, I'm asking you, sincerely, that you would also pray as we consider God's Word together. Father, we are thankful to have your Word. We're thankful that we can not only hear it read aloud, but hold a copy in our hands. And we're thankful that we have the opportunity to gather and to sit under the preaching of your Word, even though we all understand our, our frailty during this time, this what is the chief of the means of grace? We understand and we recognize that when we would do good, evil lies close at hand. And when we, when we would seek to grow in grace and to give our attention to the reading and to the preaching of your word, that there are very many distractions that are pressed in upon us, natural things, things that are out of our control as well as corruptions of our flesh. We're asking, Father, would you please... 
alleviate these things, make them a little lighter, just for a few minutes as we consider your word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. We're picking up again this morning with a discussion of what Paul refers to in verse 7 as the mystery. Now, I know the ESV translates the word secret. We talked last week about how that's probably not the best translation of this word because secret puts things in our minds, as well as the, the English word mystery. These words put things in our minds that don't really line up with what the Bible means when it uses this term mystery. In an attempt to defend his ministry among the Corinthians, Paul has already said that he came proclaiming the testimony of God. He said that when he was among them, he decided to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He said in verse uh, 6, Among the mature we do impart wisdom. All of these phrases, the testimony of God, Christ and Him crucified, heavenly wisdom... All of these are referring to the same thing, the same message that was entrusted to the apostles for them to then proclaim to the world, which the Scripture also refers to here and elsewhere as the mystery. Now, the mystery, biblically speaking, now I say that because when we hear mystery, we think of a mystery novel or a mystery movie. We've got to try to hunt down the clues to find out who who done it. That's not what the word mystery means in Scripture. A biblical mystery, or the mystery, biblically speaking, is that which was decreed from eternity by God. It was veiled in prior generations as God began to reveal little pieces, but He didn't reveal all of it. But then it became fully known later in redemptive history with the coming of Christ. That's the mystery. Elsewhere in in the New Testament, specifically in Ephesians and Colossians, we see phrases like this. Ephesians 1.9, Paul refers to the mystery as the purpose of God set forth in Christ. What's the mystery? Well, it's the purpose of God set forth in Christ. Ephesians 3.4, it's simply called the mystery of Christ. In Ephesians 3.6, he says, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We move to Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. This mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Colossians 2, God's mystery, which is Christ. And Colossians 4, again, simply the mystery of Christ. It's all referring to the same thing. The mystery is the mystery of Christ. The mystery is the fullness of what we typically just call the gospel. That's our term for it. But the Bible opens it up in, 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 a, in a more broad sense. The mystery is the fullness of the gospel containing all of the specific details of the person and work of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Under the Old Covenant, they knew that a Messiah was coming. They knew from Genesis 3, the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. And God revealed things more and more and more and more. 
But they could have never understood the fullness of what we see now. The Son of God taking flesh and blood to live and die in the place of sinners and, and so on and so forth. There, there were parts of it they didn't really understand. They weren't fully manifest yet. The mystery contains the way that sinners are reconciled to God through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ the, or the man Christ Jesus and how people from all nations would be saved through that same work. The Jews, even though, even as in, in the psalm we just read, all flesh will come. Well, the scriptures contain many statements similar to that, but for the Jewish mind to comprehend that the nations of the world, that Gentiles like us would be sitting and worshiping their God through the, the bloodshedding of their Messiah, well, that was not fully comprehended. Those are the parts of the mystery that we now get to see with the fullness of Revelation. The mystery also refers to all of the blessings that come to sinners through Christ. And specifically, how it is through our union with Christ that every spiritual blessing becomes ours. And we see that in, in the phrase uh, in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, hope is something we don't see. Glory is something we don't yet have. So there's, there's a hope that a Christian has of glory to come. Well, how do we get that hope? Well, essentially, it's Christ in you. Through union with Christ Himself, through the indwelling Spirit, we are given this deposit that, it, that produces an immediate hope in future glory. That is also a part of the mystery. So union with the indwelling Christ produces not only salvation now, but the hope of the consummation of it in eternity. It's, again, it's the fullness of the gospel and all of the details of the gospel as far deep as we could search. This was the apostolic message. Paul even closes the epistle to the Romans by saying this. Listen, this is Romans 16, 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, we would typically say, well, the preaching of Jesus Christ is the preaching of the gospel. The preaching of the gospel is the preaching of Jesus Christ. He's taking what we typically slam together. He's just pulling it apart a little bit. My gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations or and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul's gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ were according to the revelation of the mystery. As, as the mystery was revealed, they grabbed it, they went to the nations to preach it. This mystery constituted the substance of Paul's message, which was the gospel. And we know the crowning jewel and essence of the gospel is Christ Jesus Himself and our being united to Him. That's the mystery and again, all of this is, is referring to this same message, the testimony of God, Christ and Him crucified, or heavenly wisdom. This is Paul's subject. He's elaborating upon this, and he's, he's defending his ministry. This is Paul's subject as he makes his defense. 
divine revelation of the mystery as it has come to the apostles. It's all introduction. Now, we're going to take up the exposition with verses 9 through 13. And we see now Paul's going to go a little further describing the same thing. The topic hasn't changed. I've broken it up into three headings. The subject of divine revelation, the agent of divine revelation, and the method of divine revelation. Divine revelation is just my way of saying the mystery, the gospel, this, this revelation. So first, the subject of divine revelation in verses 9 through 10a. We read, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So here, instead of the testimony of God, instead of Christ and Him crucified, instead of wisdom from heaven, instead of the mystery, He explains it using this language. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no heart of man has imagined, what God has prepared. It's all the same thing. He's just describing it a little differently. It's another way of speaking of wisdom, of the mystery. But he's being here clearly, when you, when you read it, a little more uh, illustrative in this description of the revelation. Now he sort of, he, he, he paints it in flowery language that sort of leaves it in the realm of the, the incomprehensible and yet the, the uh, tantalizing or titillating, the, the, something that draws us out. We want to know more. He's saying something, but he's not really saying something. It's something nobody's ever seen. Well, what is it? Well, nobody's ever seen it. He's, he's, he's trying to draw them in to imagine, if, if they could, the, the incomprehensibility of, of the message. No eye has ever seen it. No ear has ever heard of it. No heart has ever imagined it. And again, all of this is contrary to the idea that well, when it comes to Christianity or gospel preaching, oh, there's no wisdom in that. I mean, you just said all, all over chapter 1 that you were that it was not the wisdom of the world, not the wisdom of the world. God's wisdom confused man's wisdom, confounded man's wisdom. Well, they might begin to think, so then there's no wisdom at all? It's just silly? No, 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 no. He's, he's countering that. The mystery revealed to the apostles and the prophets actually utterly transcends all human experience. When he says, well, it's not worldly wisdom. Well, we aren't to suppose then, well, uh, I guess it's just so silly that people don't get it. No, what he's saying is, no, no mind could ever fathom it. That's, that's why it's, it's otherworldly. No one ever saw anything like it. No one ever heard anything like it. No one could have ever imagined anything like this mystery. So the subject of that which God has revealed is this great incomprehensible mystery of the gospel. Number two, Paul points us to the agent of divine revelation. The agent of divine revelation, picking up again in verse 10 through verse 12. These things, what things? Same thing we've been talking about. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. 
Or who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Now, you notice four times there Paul mentions the Holy Spirit. He sort of bookends this little section. In verse 10, God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Verse 12, we have received the Spirit who is from God. He's emphasizing the fact that it is the Spirit of God who makes these things known. And this would be, as we've said before, a confirmation of all that Christ said to His apostles in the, in the upper room discourse concerning the, the coming of the Spirit. I'll read you some of the statements that were made. I will ask the Father and He will give you the Spirit of truth. The Spirit's going to come. He's talking to His apostles. The Spirit's going to come to you as the Spirit of truth. He says, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in My name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, will bear witness about Me. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth. What Paul's saying here is just a confirmation of that. Christ said, when I ascend into the heavens, and we read of it in Acts chapter 2, He sends the gift of the Holy Spirit. Upon who? The apostles. And they begin to what? Preach. They preach the mystery. That Jesus that you crucified, God raised Him up. He's the Messiah. He's the one David was t- talking about. They immediately began to preach. That's the emphasis here. Paul's saying the Spirit of God has revealed these things to us. We could put put it like this. Paul's, in his defense, he's saying, say what you want about my ministry. Say what you want about my my pulpit eloquence or my, my demeanor as I spoke. It came with the power of the Holy Spirit. We've already seen that. A demonstration of the Holy Spirit and of power because it was the Holy Spirit Himself who gave us the deposit, who, who revealed these things to us. That's what he's saying. And, and he uses this rationale. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now we don't read that as if he's saying that the Spirit of God has to go and actually search out and find out facts and, and learn. The concept of searching here and throughout Scripture is a reference to penetration. The Spirit of God penetrates the very depths of the being of God. How? Well, because He is God Himself. As many have pointed out, this is a great assertion of the divinity of the Spirit. To illustrate that point, again, He gives that rationale. The Spirit searches everything. We need help up here. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. And He illustrates that with something we would, we would comprehend. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him. That, that applies to us. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God, except the spirit of God. What, what's he saying? Just like you know your own intentions, your own motivations, your own purposes, your own plans, I can't come to you and, and charge your motives and say, well, I know why you did this. Because I don't know your motives, I don't know your intentions, and you can't do that with me either. This is a human thing. He's saying, just like that is with you, you know your own thinking, your own intention, your own purposes. Well, it's the same with God. Only the Spirit of God knows what's happening in the very depths of God. 
Therefore, the Spirit of God is capable of making such things known, but His point is actually to exclusivize this. Only the Spirit of God can do this. I can't come to you and tell you your motives were this. Only I can name my motives. That's his point. Everybody understands this. Only the Spirit can make these matters known. He's saying the wisdom of God in a mystery, or the gospel, as we might put it, far from being childish drivel, actually constitutes the very depths of the mind of God Himself. And therefore, only God can make these things known. Only God. If, if we could somehow, and obviously this is using human ideas and imaginations, but if there was some way to penetrate into the very heart and depths of the mind of God, as far down as it, one could possibly go, we would find there this mystery, this purpose of God in saving sinners through His Son. The Spirit penetrates the depths of God and then the Spirit makes that known. The Spirit of God is the primary agent of divine revelation. Number three, we see the method of divine impartation. The method of divine impartation. We might ask, by what process does the revelation come from God to men? What's the process? It's in God. Only the Spirit of God can penetrate the depths of God. How does it come to men? Verse 13. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Here Paul pointedly defends the method that God has chosen to use in making this revelation known to men, namely, the preaching and or writing of the apostles. Notice what he says. We, we've talked about the, the pronouns, who is we, the, the apostolic messengers, we impart this. We, ap apostles and prophets of the New Testament, we convey this mystery using words we impart this message the Holy Spirit has given to us and it's implied that there is a you. We impart this to other people. We impart this, and then he says this, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. So he begins with the negative, it ends with the positive. The positive statement would be this. We impart this message. We convey this word using words that the Holy Spirit gave to us to use. The very words they used were the words given to them by the Spirit of God. In other words, it wasn't merely the content, the idea of the gospel, the very wording that they used to impart it was given to them by the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's saying, we wanted to sort of rephrase it in his defense, you might not find me appealing by the world's standards. It might not have been in words of eloquent wisdom according to your standards, but I spoke the very words of God that the Spirit gave to me. And this is why, again, that his ministry was a demonstration of the Spirit and of power, because the Spirit revealed not only the content, but the very words with which to convey it. 
The same idea is, is, is mentioned in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, where Paul says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, they heard preaching. But it was the Word of God. He said, you received, you accepted it, not as the Word of men, but as what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. So, so the method of the divine impartation is that the Spirit gives to the apostles the, the understanding of the mystery and also the very words with which to convey it, content and words. Then he adds this summary statement. The ESV reads, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, if we read it a little more literally, you would have this word that's translated interpreting, or it could be uh, translated comparing or combining. Interpreting spiritual, spiritual. Now, if that's all we had, we, we, we got some questions that we need to answer. Very often in our English translations, there, there is an attempt to interpret and translate at the same time because if we just had interpreting spiritual, spiritual, we would say, I, you, you've lost me. What are we talking about here? So that, there are two questions that I think are important here. And this is a, maybe one of the last of the difficult parts of this chapter. The first question is, what does that word that we have translated interpreting, what does it mean, or how should we think of it? And then what are these two, quote, spirituals? Interpreting spiritual, spiritual. What, what are those two things? So first, what does this word interpreting mean? Well, it, it's used most often, as far as I can tell, in the Greek Old Testament for the interpretation of dreams taking the information that was given and explaining the reality of it. Here's what I've got and let me explain it. So we, we might could even use the word explaining or interpreting. Now what are the two spirituals? Or, or what, what do these words refer to? Because interpreting or explaining or comparing or combining, all of that assumes you've got a thing in each hand and you're bringing them together. Well, in our text we've got spiritual... And spiritual. What are those two things? What two things in the context are being addressed or called spiritual? Now we have a couple options. First, it might be or it could be the revelation from the Spirit and the Spirit-given words, as the NAS translates it. The Spirit-given words. So it would read something like this combining the revelation of the Spirit with the words given by the Spirit. Now, that certainly fits the context of what he's saying. I think I would argue it fits the context so well that he literally just said the same thing two times. He just repeated himself. It is as if he said, we impart this in spiritual words or in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual revelation with spiritual words. It's just redundant. The same thing twice. The second option, the second of the most reasonable options, I think, would be to read it as the ESV interpretively translates it, that the revelation from the Spirit in spiritual words is all one thing. And the second thing would be the people who are the recipients of it as if he were saying, we speak 
spirit-given truth using spirit-given words to spiritual people. Now, both of these options are true. If you, whichever one you want to take. Is he talking about the revelation or the content being paired with spiritual words? Or is he talking about the content and the words being interpreted to spiritual people? Both of those things are true. But the context and flow of thought seems to favor number two because in the next two verses he goes on to talk about kinds of people. Natural people. The natural person. Verse 15, the spiritual person. Well, that, and that's his, his concern at this point anyway, going back to, to the beginning of, or, or verse 6 of chapter 2, mature and immature, his addressing their problem of immaturity. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says that he could not address them as spiritual people. Now that word that's translated spiritual people is the exact same word that's translated spiritual in uh, verse 13. And that's why it's translated those who are spiritual, spiritual people. So if we take that option, we could, we could read the verse in this way or, or interpretively read it this way. We impart this mystery in words not taught by human wisdom, but given to us by the Spirit, explaining this spiritual revelation to spiritual people. And then he would have to go on in chapter 3 to say, but we couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. It's, it, that seems to me to fit the context, but also the forward movement of this whole section. The point being that God had chosen to make the mystery known to the apostles by the by the agency of the Holy Spirit, both in content and in words. And He had ordained that they take that content with those words and give it to other people. That's how the Word of God has come to us. Again, it's, it's a long way of explaining, explaining the special role and function of the apostles. This is the method of divine revelation. This is how God has chosen to work. He could have placarded across the sky and gathered everybody together and said, well, read it. But He didn't. He chose to give it to certain men who would then go into the world to preach it to others, who would then entrust that to faithful men who would teach others also. That's God's method. But we trace that back, humanly speaking, to the apostles. So if we put all of this together, what can we learn? Well, we learn here that the blessings that come to sinners through Jesus Christ, that is the mystery... These blessings are so far beyond the reach of human intellect that they can only be revealed by an act of God. Or we could put it in the past tense. They could only have been made known by an act of God Himself. So boundless and fathomless are these depths that God alone reveals them. To use the language of Christ with Peter, flesh and blood could not reveal this. To men, but only our Father in heaven by His Spirit. He said negatively, No eye has seen, no, no ear has heard, no heart of man imagined. He, he was pointing to all of these both external and internal receptive faculties in men. Human eyes have never seen the beauty of this mystery. Human ears have never heard of the majesty of this mystery. It's, it's sort of like 
whenever the queen of Sheba came to Solomon and she said, I heard, I heard, I heard, but the half had not been told. How much more Christ and the gospel and the glories of His kingdom would we say, well, we, we heard, we heard, we heard, but when we see it, we will say, the half was not told. He references the heart of man, the whole of the inner life of a man. The heart, the eyes, the ears, no part of any man, nor the whole inner and outer faculties of all men have ever been able to contemplate the fullness of the glories which await the children of God, that is, those who love Him. That's the reference there. Positively, God revealed them through the Spirit. Negatively, no mortal man could penetrate these depths, the depths of the mind of God. Positively, the Spirit of God has done so with ease. I think this is paralleled almost exactly with what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21, where he says, No prophecy of Scripture ever comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy of Scripture, or no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. From from my understanding, what he's saying there is, we don't come up with our own message because the message itself didn't originate with man. Therefore, we can't just come along and originate within ourselves our own interpretation. God had to give the message and God had to give the prophecy of Scripture so that it could be preached. It comes from God. God alone could, could make this revelation. The blessings of the gospel and our union with Christ are so good that our fallen humanity could not dream of its goodness. The benefits of this mystery are so glorious that our eyes could not behold the sight of them right now. The consummation of all of this will be so extravagant that our minds could not make sense of them if we saw them now apart from the glorified state. There is a tendency when you hear this passage quoted, verse 9, what no eye has seen, ear heard, etc. It's usually referenced as only talking about heaven. Well, it's a quotation from Isaiah, more than likely, talking about the coming of the Messiah and the future blessings that would come that Christ would bring in for His people. So we don't need to limit this by just saying, well, what Paul's saying there is... You know, in, in all of this talk about the mystery and the wisdom of God, that he decided to make a, a good point about how great heaven's going to be. No, it's far, it's far more than that, far greater. Don't, don't limit it. It's all of the mystery in Christ. Think about this. The fallen mind of man, our minds, the fallen mind of man is so vast and so powerful and imaginative, and creative, that men have dreamt up the most sublime worlds of fantasy that anybody has ever heard of. Men have been able to write the greatest stories of love, of valor, of sacrifice, of heroism, of victory. Men have imagined and designed and then created elaborate and advanced technological devices and systems that prior generations would have said, that's not even possible. The the fallen minds of men can do that and have done it and continue to do it. And what Paul's saying here is that 
that mind, that fallen mind of man, and all of that mind, and even all of those minds combined, if we were all given a thousand lifetimes to put our heads together, to try to come up with or try to imagine the glories of the mysteries of the gospel in Christ, we could have never come up with it. We could not have conceived of even a sliver of the glories of our salvation in Christ if God had not made it known. Peter says in 1 Peter 1, and notice the parallels of this language, the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. You heard the good news from people who preached it. They got it from the Holy Spirit. They preached to you those things. Peter says, these are things that the angels long to look into. The angels. It's as if he's saying the holy angels who behold the very face of God, they hear about what God is doing in Christ to save sinners, and they're drawn to it. They are intrigued. Help us to understand what's happening here. Now we can look at sights in creation that take our breath away. And we can look at little, whether it be living creatures or created things from the, the, the hands and intellect of men that, that very often leave us dumbfounded or confused. The, the tiniest insects that a, a biologist would have to tell us that insect has a heart, has lungs, it has a brain inside of this, to us, almost microscopic thing. And, and our minds are, are confounded. How could that possibly be? We can listen to sounds or, or music created by men that stirs our souls, affects us inwardly. We listen to it and our, our mind and our heart is moved. Men came up with these things, put the, put the notes together and began to play and were stirred. We can experience tastes and food that we say, why would God be so good? This is, this is unbelievable. Or we get to experience joys like the love between a husband and a wife or the happiness that comes with the blessing of children or the exhilaration that comes from good edifying Christian conversation or even we can experience some bit of communion with God here and now in this life. And yet God says all of that is nothing compared to the fullness of the salvation we have received in Jesus Christ. It doesn't even compare. These things, this mystery that no eye has seen, no ear heard, these things, because they are the very depths of the mind of God, that, that lets us know they are co-eternal with God. They began, began, if there was a beginning, when God began, which is no beginning, eternal. They're infinite, just as God is infinite. There's, when we, we begin to search out the depths of the mystery of the gospel, we find out there's no bottom, there's no top, there's no eastern boundary, western boundary. It's fathomless as God. The fullness of the blessings of the gospel are in God from everlasting to everlasting. They began before there ever was a man in eternity when there was only God. These mysteries were there. In the mind of God, there in eternity, God, infinite in being and perfection, the infinite one, glorious in splendor, using human language, was thinking, was loving, 
was decreeing in himself a way that he might do sinners some good. How he might himself be the very goodness given to us. No eye and no ear, no heart of man was formed. There was only God. Therefore, eyes could not see this happening. Ears could not hear of this happening. Men could not imagine this because we weren't even there yet. It begins with God. And yet it's there where the mystery begins. No man could have ever dreamed of God loving sinners before there were ever men or men ever sinned. The recipients of what God has prepared for those who love Him in verse 9. The saints of God. They're called in Romans 8.28, those whom He foreknew. That word foreknew is referring to the special covenant love and faithfulness that God had to His people. He didn't just know about them. He, he knew them intimately from eternity. Those whom He foreknew. Well, had anyone ever seen God loving His people in eternity? Had anyone ever heard about God loving His people in eternity? Had anyone ever imagined? Would you have ever dreamed this up if God had not made it known? Just sitting in your room, twiddling your thumbs, staring at the walls, and you know what? I bet from eternity, God, who created all things, set His heart to save sinners. No, you would have said, a sinner? No, not me. I'm not a sinner. We could have never dreamed this up. And how do I know that's true? Because we struggle to believe it even now. We've got the fullness of the revelation. And we hear it and we say, that's amazing. That's astounding. Paul tells us that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4. That is that God chose us unto salvation through union with His own Son before the world was. Well, let me ask you. Would you have known that God had a son if He didn't tell you? Would you have come up with that? Well, I think He's got a son. I think He's going to unite us to His son. I think He decided, I think He chose us in eternity. You would have never come up with this. Would you have imagined that God would unite a sinner to His son by giving us His own spirit to dwell within us? Had anyone ever seen anything like this before? No. He says in Romans 8.28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. And that's what He's done. He's, he's worked all things according to the counsel of His will from, from the beginning of time all the way down through the centuries until in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son born of a woman. Had anyone ever seen or heard of God working out every detail of history to save sinners apart from the revelation? Had anybody, any, was there another plan, another idea before this that God picked up and just ran with and copied? No. Had anyone ever seen or heard of God sending His Son into the world? Or did it ever enter into the heart of man that God the Son could be born of a woman? You say, no, I still, I still can't understand it. We couldn't have dreamed this up because we can't understand it now with the revelation from God. Had I seen or ear heard 
that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and call his name God with us. No. Men still deny it to this day. They read it, they say, there's no way, that's not possible. So we wouldn't dream this up on our own. If God had not told us in His Word, would any of us have ever dreamed that the eternal Word of God would assume to Himself the nature of a man and live a life of perfect personal and perpetual obedience to every command of God without fail? Would we have come up with that? Have you ever met a perfect person? You haven't. You, you, we can't even imagine a perfect person. We, 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 we hear the words, perfect person, doesn't even make any sense to us. As a matter of fact, our, the, the, the chant of the human race unanimously is, nobody's perfect. That's what we know. Nobody's perfect. We can't comprehend what it would be like to be in the presence of the man Christ Jesus, a perfect man. We didn't come up with this. The idea is beyond us. Did it ever enter into our minds that there might be a man who would walk in the presence of universally sinful men and yet himself without sin? And that he would do that as our substitute. That he would do that not for himself because he didn't need it. He's God the Son. But he would do that because we needed it. Or had anyone ever seen the Lord of glory hanging and dying on a Roman cross? Anybody ever seen anything like that? Heard anything like that? Before it happened? Had anyone ever conjured up a story where the sins of men would be laid on God the Son and He would then suffer for them under God's wrath? No. Did it ever enter into the hearts of men that God the Son could at one and the same time uphold the universe by the word of His power while also Himself being upheld by nails in His hands and feet? Could you have dreamed that up? Could you have concocted this? I, would you, do you think in your study that you, you would have said, you know what, I, I think I could have probably put this thing together. A lot of times we're tempted as we read the story of the gospel, the stories of Scripture, and the, the, we're tempted with unbelief to think, this is, how is this different than the multiplicity of religions in the world? How can I really know that this wasn't just some man-made concoction? He's telling us right here, nobody could have ever dreamed this up. This is so far outside the bounds of human imagination and comprehension, it simply isn't possible. Why would Christ do all of this? To make payment to divine justice for our sins. He came into the world, lived a life of perfection, suffered under the wrath of God for sinners, so that we could go free. So that the sinners would have the guilt of their sin taken off of them, never to return. No more guilt. Gone in an instant. Had anyone ever heard of anything like this? The Son of God dying to save sinful men? Think about it. If you didn't have Scripture, and this is hard for us to do, but you didn't have Scripture, there's no revelation from God, and come, somebody comes up to you and they says, Hey, would the Son of God ever die to make an atonement for sins committed against Himself? in order to guarantee that the offenders could be eternally saved and with Him forever because He loved them, we would say, you're out of your mind. Apart from Revelation, we'd say, number one, I don't know what a sinner is. I've never met one. Number two, I thought that I was God this whole time, so now I'm really confused. But what you just described, that's not possible. That couldn't happen. We'd say it could never be. 
No eye has seen it, nor no ear heard it. No, it never entered into the minds of men what God would do. What about the resurrection? Did anybody ever die or arise from the dead never to die again? No people were raised from the dead, but they died again. Have you ever seen a human body that was incorruptible? I haven't. That's all we know. That's, that's our, our universal experience is that human bodies start young and they get old and they die. And yet Christ was raised with a body incorruptible. Men have dreamed up the ideas of air travel and space travel. But did you ever see anyone going up into heaven with the clouds? Just up it goes with the clouds of heaven. No, we've never dreamed of that. We can't do it. Can you even now, right now, can you really imagine, can you really contemplate the man Christ Jesus, that is God the Son in bodily form, seated at the right hand of the majesty on high? I, for one, when I try to go there mentally, I will, I will confess that I see with the eyes of faith so dimly that sometimes it's hard for me to actually nail down a specific thought other than the truth of the words revealed in Scripture. It's beyond my imagination. It's beyond our comprehension. Has it ever entered into the hearts of men that that same mediator and high priest would take his place there in the heavenly holy place to make intercession for his people still on earth? Has it ever, have you ever seen the, the wounds of Christ presented in heaven on your behalf? Or what about this? Jesus said, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. Has anybody ever seen it? You ever dreamed up this place? Did, did this just enter into the, the minds of men? Did somebody just fabricate this idea that God the Son would come and do all of this for sinners, go back up into the heavens until a time when He would come again to take us to Himself, and in the meantime, He's getting the place ready to be with us forever? No eye had seen nor ear heard that the Son of Man would someday come with the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, that the heavenly hosts and all of the saints would come in His train to take His people for Himself. It would never have entered into the hearts of men that our perishable bodies could be raised up imperishable. That what will be sown in dishonor will be raised in glory. That what will be sown in weakness will be raised in power. That our natural bodies would be raised spiritual bodies. Nobody ever imagined that. It is a matter of pure, exclusive, divine revelation. Period. End of story. It only makes sense through faith in the revelation of God. But all of this is a part of this glorious mystery. Not even the greatest fantasy novelist could have imagined that the Lord Himself would descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, that the dead in Christ would rise first, and then all who are left alive would be caught up together with them to be with the Lord forever. We couldn't come up with that. Even now, as we read it, we have to say, Lord, help my unbelief. It's too wonderful for me. Peter describes heaven itself as a place in which righteousness dwells. You ever seen such a world? Can you even imagine that? We can't imagine that. 
a place in which every, every interaction, everything we see is righteousness. Every person we see, righteousness. Every, every, every person we interact with, our, our first thought of that person and every perception of everything that they do is only perfect righteousness. We can't do that. We can't even imagine it. Apart from divine revelation, can any of us really imagine a place where the dwelling place of God is with man, where He will dwell with us and we will be His people, and God Himself will be with us as our God, where He will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. You ever seen that? Ever experienced that? It's beyond us. It's like saying, think of a color you've never seen before. Can't do it. It's, it's beyond. It's beyond our, our capability. And all of this happens or comes to us through a real, spiritual, vital union with the Son of God by the indwelling Spirit of God. We've become partakers of the divine nature. Christ in you. The Messiah in you. That's the mystery and the hope of glory. We have the revelation of it and we can't fathom it. We have the, the record of it in God's Word and yet we spend our whole lives trying to wrap our puny minds around the details. Could it really be? Is that really true? God, help me to believe. I can't fathom it. I can't see it. And that's where faith has to triumph. All of this is evidence of what Paul is saying here. Paul's saying this is a heavenly mystery. These truths have their origin in the infinite depths of the mind of God. Man cannot find it out. Man cannot search it out. Man cannot dream it up. And we can't work our way to it with enough study and contemplation. You can't get alone enough for long enough with enough books and enough silence to come up with this. We can't. It's only given by God through the Spirit. First to the apostles, and then through the apostles to us in words taught by the Spirit, which we have inscripturated in our Bibles. That's the only way it comes. It's the only way that men come to know this mystery. So a few applications, or, or more questions really, just to stir up your, your contemplation. Does the thought of, of all this, or does this thought not make you cherish the Word of God? Does it not make you cherish the Word of God? Should we not love our Bibles? And should we not pray consistently to the prayer-hearing, prayer-answering God that He would help us to receive with meekness the implanted Word? Should we not read and reread and study and search and meditate relying upon the Spirit of God to make known to us the revelation of the mystery in greater and greater fullness. I'll say it again. Just because we didn't get it like they got it doesn't mean we don't have it. We have it inscripturated. But we still need the Holy Spirit. This, this, book, this book, ink on paper, is powerless apart from the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God must make the revelation effectual. We ought to treasure our Bibles, but also treasure and plead with God for the help of the Holy Spirit to understand. 
Does this not stir up our hearts with gratitude to God that He would make Himself known in this way? That God would speak to men. That God would call His apostles. That God would give His Spirit and make the mystery known to the apostles. That God would then send them into the world. That God would give us a copy of the Scriptures. That God would give us His Spirit so that we can understand what we read. We would be utterly helpless without Him. We'd have nothing. You and I would never have discovered this. You and I could never have dreamed up all of the glories of what God has done, is doing, and will do. We would be lost and wondering, blind, aimless, headed for destruction. That's where we would be. We would be without hope and without God in this world. We would be like the Gentiles once were, a people sitting in darkness. Nothing. If God had not done this. Surely, if you think about that, you would say, you know what, I'm grateful that God has done that. Or maybe I shouldn't presume. Maybe I should ask, has the Spirit made these things known to you? Has the Spirit made these things known to you? And, and I'm not referring again to just a, merely a, a rational explanation because that's what I've just done. I've read the Scriptures. I've kind of told you some things. And we can do that. We can come to it with, with a very, very rational perception of the words. I can read the words. I understand the sentences. That's not what I'm talking about. Has the Spirit of God actually made these things known to you to the eye of faith through the Scriptures so that you believe them? Has that happened? Are you able to rest your soul on these eternal truths of what we would call the mystery of Christ? When you hear the truths of the gospel, does that put your soul at ease? Can you say with the Apostle Paul, when you hear the gospel, yeah, that's my gospel. That's, that's, that's mine right there. That message, that's the one I've taken hold of. That's where I'm resting. Do these so-called deep things of God, do these have your affections? Do they have you? Or are you most captivated by the things which exist by the creativity and ingenuity of man? Do you live in the clutches of what every man could see and hear and imagine? The things of the world. Are you willing to exercise your mind on the mystery of Christ? Or are these just what we might call church thoughts? What do I mean by that? Would you say, well, when my mind is taken there, preacher, when, when the preacher goes there, well, my thoughts are confessional, reformed, historical, orthodox, however you want to say it. My thoughts, if somebody takes me there, well, my thoughts are right. Or would you say, I go there. My mind goes there often, and there are many times when I have to pull my mind back from that to engage in regular earthly dealings. You see the difference? When you come to church, if you're listening, everybody's mind can be taken to the truth. But not everybody's mind, when they're not at church, is willing to go after it. Because it's theirs. It has them. And the reason I ask this is because it does seem like 
a lot of, of what we would call the Reformed movement is made up of people living off of second-hand experiential theology that's just been written and preached by other men. And so to be Reformed for a lot of people just means that basically you're making it spiritually paycheck to paycheck. And the payday comes whenever somebody else communicates their knowledge and their experience. Aha, I've got something to carry me through. You hear it, and maybe you're stirred, and maybe you delight in what you hear, and then you immediately just start to nosedive. And you spend whatever you got, and you nosedive until the next meme, or the next sermon jam, or the next podcast, or the next conference. I got my paycheck, and I'm living off of this, and I've got to wait until somebody else gives me another one so that I can survive spiritually. That's, that's true for a lot of people. Very often, just enough will blow off of somebody else's relationship with God into a book or onto YouTube or onto sermon audio. Just enough blows off that other people think, well, I've got a relationship with God too. When in fact, they have no heart or mind for the things of God by themselves. They're just living off of what those other people have. They don't have a real thriving affection for Christ. They're not willing to exercise their own minds in searching the mysteries or searching out these mysteries. That's, these are important things to consider. And they're convicting to us all. It's convicting to me to think. Do these things have you? Does the mystery, is, is the mystery, does it have you in its clutches? So that when you hear it, you say, that's mine. When you, when you have free time, that's where your mind goes. You, you want to do the work of getting your mind settled down, not to focus about worldly thing, worldly thing, worldly thing, worldly thing, but to search out and know and just dwell upon the details of the mystery of the gospel. Is that reality for you? And I'll, I'll, I'll say this, others have said it before, it's not easy. It's, it's very, very difficult. But I think a believer says, I, I want to try. I want to try my best. I want to I strive after it. Do you know these things? Are they yours by the revelation of the Spirit? If not, as we've seen, these are matters which no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and the heart of man has not imagined it. What, these things that God has prepared, what God has done and is doing and, and will do through Jesus Christ, these are all matters of the exclusive revelation of the Spirit of God. I, I can't give it to you. I can tell you and you have to call upon God Himself to make the revelation known. You must call upon Him. But I trust that all of us are able or, or learning to see ourselves as utterly dependent upon God in all things, in eternally indebted to God for these things, we wouldn't have found it out. It, it wasn't coincidence. Divine providence, divine revelation through the Scriptures, God came after us. God brought us to Himself. Apart from Him, we would be hopeless. But we need to, we need to recognize that. We're, we're utterly dependent if you can if you can make it a day having spent no time in the word of god in prayer and it doesn't 
at least nag you a little bit, I, I, can't, I, I could not call myself a Christian if that were me. Because we, we, we've got to have it. We, we wake up. I, I set up out of my bed. And my first thought is, I'm so helpless. God, help me. Give me something. And usually it's not anything extravagant. It's just this, this feeling of helplessness. We, we, we need to have that nourished so that we go to the one who is our help and our strength. We've, we've got to move away from independence. Our nation is founded on the independence of the individual. We want to declare our independence. We're not independent. We are dependent upon God. Thank Him for what He's given us. That we who sat in darkness were able to see a great light.